Now, our scripture verse, verses for today are taken from the book of Zephaniah. Uh, that's to be found on page 790 of your pew Bibles. Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. The good, the good word from the Lord. Zephaniah, 14, Zephaniah 3, 14 through 17. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion, let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. The grass withers and the flower fades. Amen. Please join me in your Bibles in John chapter 17. And if you're using your pew Bible, you can find it on page 903. John 17 is Jesus' final prayer with his disciples before he goes on from there to his betrayal, to his trial, and to his death. And so as you'd expect in this moment, these final moments with his disciples, this is a, a very emotional time. When I was in college, my family and I developed a habit of praying with each other in the moments before I got in the car to drive away. It was a 12-hour drive from Alabama to North Carolina. I didn't have a cell phone, and it would be uh, many months before I was able to return. And so these times of prayer were really important for the family. It really brought us together. It was a way for us to express our love for each other, but also a way for us to jointly express our trust in God as we turned over the situation to him, looking to him for his mercy. A, a final prayer, any final prayer before a farewell or a parting is going to be one of the most uh, tender moments in any person's life. We could think about Moses praying with the people of Israel before he left them to go and die. Or we could think of Paul praying with the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts before he goes on to his trial in Rome, and they all are weeping together in this moment of final prayer. And now we come here to John 17, Jesus' final prayer with his disciples after the time of communion, after the Lord's Supper, and after his, his wonderful message to them about their union with him and with the Lord. Uh, this prayer, as we go into it, as you'll see, it's, it's brimming with all kinds of tenderness and love and care. And it's also incredibly deep. It is fantastically deep. As I read through John chapter 17 this week, time after time, I kept thinking that John 17 is like a steak dinner 
that you followed up with a side of cheesecake and you wash it all down with a milkshake. There is, there is no fluff or filler here. It is 100% richness from start to finish. And, and so in this vast and deep and r- wide material, uh, what we're going to encounter today is God's heart for us. And we're going to encounter what Jesus has most importantly on his mind in these last final moments. And so for that, my job for us today, my goal for us as we get into this wonderful text is for us to simply savor this prayer. I I want for us to savor Jesus's prayer so that we ourselves would grow in hope and so that we would grow in faith in God's kindness to us. So with that in mind, brothers and sisters, let's read together our our text, John chapter 17. This is God's word to us. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son, that the son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world." I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so have I sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your word. Your word is truth. Your word is life. Your word is grace. And so I pray now that you would through your spirit, come now and speak to us. Let us hear your voice. Let us hear your word to us deep down in our souls, in our hidden places of darkness and shame and doubt and unbelief. Minister to us now, O God. Again, help us to hear your voice now. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, before I jump into this incredibly rich and deep text, I want to answer two things that might be on your mind. You might have been wondering about this as we've gone through John chapter 13 through chapter 17. Number one, where are they? Where are they when this is taking place? If you remember at the end of John 14, Jesus says, rise, let's go. And then he basically keeps on talking for the next few chapters. And so where are they? when this prayer is taking place. And it's a little bit confusing. Not everyone agrees on this, but I think the best answer is simply that they're still in the upper room. Uh, D.A. Carson compares Jesus's statement to a bunch of, teacher, or a bunch of students gathering uh, at dinner with a teacher. And if you've ever been in a situation like this, you know that someone at some point in time is going to say, all right, it's time to leave. But the conversation is going to keep going on for about another half hour. And he says that that's probably what's going on here. So they're probably just about to leave the upper room in order to go to the garden where Jesus is betrayed. That's the first question. The second thing you might be wondering is what about John's evangelistic emphasis? From the beginning of John, we've seen that he wrote to help non-Christians believe in Jesus. Has that changed? The shorter answer is no. These chapters, chapter 13 through chapter 17 that we've just read, these chapters do focus on the disciples, but they focus on the disciples in such a way that non-Christians can see the glories of the gospel in action. You can think of chapters 1 through 12 as saying, believe in Jesus and have eternal life. And then chapters 13 through 17 are are the follow-up to that to say, this is what eternal life looks like. Eternal life looks like 
enjoying the glory of God as you are in union with Christ. And so as you see that message in action, it's a compelling thing that can help non-believers believe because they see at this point in time, we see how wonderful the gospel really is. And that brings us to this prayer. This prayer from Jesus shows us the wonders of salvation. And so for us to savor this prayer, we're going to ask three questions this morning. Three questions. Why did Jesus pray? What did Jesus pray about? And what does Jesus's prayer do? First, why did Jesus pray? Why did Jesus pray? Sometimes we're so quick to jump into the content of the prayer that we can miss what's actually happening in the narrative. Jesus is praying. And it's a very different prayer than the one that we hear in Matthew or Luke. In Matthew and Luke, we hear Jesus's final prayer is one of agony. But in John, Jesus's prayer is filled with confidence. He doesn't appear to be nervous at all. And so we might wonder, why then is he praying? Well, he prayed because he loved God and because he loved God's people. If you remember the way that we've defined prayer in sermons in the past, prayer is accessing the presence and power of God by asking in faith. And Jesus wants these things. He wants God's presence and he wants God's power. He wants to bask in the midst of the Father. And you hear that all throughout this prayer. Jesus longs to be with his Father and he longs for the Father to protect God's people as they continue to be in the world. He had protected them, but now he's going. And so he's asking the Father to protect his people in power. And so he prays. He loves God's presence. He wants God's power for the people. That's why he prays. And he prays with confidence. He is absolutely convinced that the Father hears his prayer. I think that's an inspiring example for us. Sometimes we think that prayer is only for moments of crisis, or it's a tremendous burden for us to kind of think about how we go about prayer. But Jesus shows us that prayer can be a very delightful thing. Jesus prays for the pleasure of praying. He wants to be with the Father, so he prays. And he prays in order to sacrificially love the people that he's with. And so that's why he goes about prayer. So think about prayer in your own life as a a work of delight and as a work of sacrificial love. You can bask in the Father's presence in prayer. You, too, can pour out yourself for others as you pray. And you can do it just like Jesus did with great confidence that he hears your prayers. And so that sets up our second question. What did Jesus pray about? What did Jesus pray about? Remember, he's on the cusp of leaving his disciples to go to the cross. And so this is not a time for him to waste words. This prayer gives us an intimate look at what is most pressing on our Savior's mind and heart as he goes about this time. And so again, what is most on Jesus's mind? What's on his heart? What are the most important things that he's going to pray about? 
And at first it can seem maybe a little bit hard for us to categorize a prayer that is this wide-ranging and this deep in theological emphasis. As, as you're reading through it, Jesus is talking about all kinds of things. But I think the way that we can listen carefully to this prayer and understand exactly what he's praying about is for us to listen to the repeated words that happen in this text. Like Steve said earlier, if God repeats himself, he really means business, right? And so as we listen to this prayer, as you heard the prayer read aloud, you probably heard all manner of repeated words, these words that appear time and time again. And that shows us when we gather all of those repeated words, there are three things that are really pressing on Jesus's mind and heart at this very moment. God's love, God's mission, and God's glory. God's love, God's mission, and God's glory. First, he prays about God's love. This prayer is filled with the language of relationship. Jesus celebrates the intimacy that he has with the Father. And then he reveals that we can have that same level of intimacy too. Multiple times, Jesus says that he has enabled the church to know God. Through Jesus, we know God's name. Through Jesus, we know God's truth. And as J.I. Packer reminds us, this isn't simply knowing about God. This is about being in a relationship with God. And that's why Jesus says in verse 3 that knowing God is eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is being in a relationship with God forever. And then the rest of the prayer bears that out. Verses 6, 9, 10, 24 say that we are owned by God. We are possessed by God. We are his, and he has given, the Father has given us to the Son as a gift. And the Son also recognized that we still belong to the Father. And then verses 21, 23, 26 talk about believers being in Christ, and Christ being in in believers. All of that is intensely relational language. And then listen to verses 23 and 26. Jesus prays in this, that the glory that you have given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that I sent you, and then get this, and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 26, I've made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you loved me would be in them. Just think about that. Try to wrap your mind around what Jesus just said. Jesus just said that the love that God had for him before the foundation of the world, that very same love is given to you. The Father adores the Son. He is His only begotten Son. The Father loves Jesus. And now Jesus has said that He loves you. He adores you in the very same way that He loves His Son. And so when you combine these verses together, one thing becomes absolutely clear. God is passionately committed to being in a relationship with His people. God loves you. He loves you personally. 
And I know that we talk about the love of God a lot, but I'm not sure that we let that sink down deep into our lives. Think about it this way. God wants you to be close to him. He wants you to be near him. Think of the three ghosts in Charles Dickens' uh, famous book, The Christmas Carol. When we think about God, we tend to think about the ghost of Christmas past, some sort of ghostly spirit, kind of creepy, who's always showing us our moments of failure. Or we might think of him like the ghost of Christmas yet to come, a haunting, frightening figure of judgment and doom who's pointing to our grave. But according to Jesus's prayer, God the Father is like the ghost of Christmas present. He is the grand, loving person who beckons unworthy, undeserving people to him, saying, come and know me better. This is eternal life, to know and experience God's love. Jesus' prayer shows us new depths to God's love. Second, Jesus prays about God's mission. He prays about God's mission. And here is God's mission. According to the book of John, God wants to draw the world to himself through the saving work of Christ and the witness of the church. Let me say that again. God wants to draw the world to himself through the saving work of Christ and the witness of the church. And so God's mission requires Christ to be faithful and it requires the church to be faithful. Jesus needs to be faithful to the saving work God has planned for him. And the church needs to be faithful to the witness that God has set up for the church. And so Jesus prays for these things. He cares about God's mission. And so he prays for that to take place. Listen to verses 15 through 19. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in your truth. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in the truth. We hear that Jesus is consecrated. We hear that the church is sanctified. And in this context, consecration and sanctification point to the same thing. It means that something is set aside for a special holy use. You can think of it like this. At our house, we have a tea kettle. And in that tea kettle, we boil water for all kinds of things. But we also have a teapot that we only use when we are serving tea when company is over. That teapot is set aside for one special use. And what Jesus is saying here is he is setting himself aside for the, the special holy use God has for him. And then through that, he's setting the church aside for the use that God has planned for the church. Jesus consecrates himself to be the perfect sacrifice, to cleanse us, the Lamb of God who washes away the sins of the world. And then in that washing and cleansing, the church is sanctified. We're sanctified, set apart as witnesses in the world. And you can tell that this is a big deal for Jesus. He repeats the word world 18 different times in these verses. We are in the world. We are not of the world. And so there's a lot of pressure on the church. 
When you hear this at time after time, repeated word, world, they're not in the world. The world does this. They don't do this. And so there's the great pressure on the church. There's pressure that the church would compromise our mission. There's pressure on the church that we would divide along the way. And that's why Jesus prays. Jesus asks the Father to protect us so that we can stand firm in our convictions. And then he asks the Father to unify us so that we, in our fellowship, would be able to make the gospel message tangible. Think about what the gospel is. When we are saved, we're brought into fellowship with the Trinity. And, and so when we ourselves are unified, we show that wonderful message of unification to the world. The world can look at our fellowship and see the fellowship that we have with God. That's what verses 20 through 21 are about. Verses 20 through 21, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. One commentator says that church love is a very important form of world mission. Jesus cares about God's mission, and so he prays about it. And then third, Jesus prays about God's glory. He prays about God's glory. You, you can't miss that in this text. Glory is everywhere. Verse one, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. Verse four, I've glorified you on earth. Verse five, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Verse 10, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. Verse 22, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. And then verse 24, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory. There's a tangible anticipation here. Jesus longs to be back into the Father's presence. And then he wants to be there with us us because he knows how absolutely wonderful it is there. When I was in college, we would go out to Western Carolina to spend fall break out in the mountains, and it was amazing. If you've never been to Western Carolina in the fall, it's absolutely incredible. The colors are amazing. The crisp air, the sheer beauty is stunning. But again, I'm from Alabama. I'd never been to Western Carolina in the fall. And so the very first year I was there, I had a bunch of friends who were going to go, and I was not convinced that I wanted to be there. I wasn't sure that that was going to be a good use of my fall break. But my friends kept pressuring me to go. They kept saying how wonderful it would be because they had been there before. They remembered what it was like. They knew what it was going to be, and they wanted to share that experience with me. They knew that it was going to be absolutely beautiful. And Jesus is doing the same thing. Jesus wants to share the beauty of God with us. He's been there before, and he's going back, and he wants to take us with him. 
And like he says in verse 22, he's already starting to share that glory with us as he dwells in us and we in him. Now, why does Jesus so badly want to share God's glory with us? It's because he loves us. And so we've come now full circle. Love leads to mission, which leads back around to glory and then to love. Savor that for a minute. Love, mission, glory, love. Let that sink down deep into your heart. Do you believe that God wants you close to him? That God has a purpose for your life, that he wants to use you in his mission. Do you believe that God wants to pour his life into your life? That is a good word for those of us who labor under the burden of shame or disappointment, for those who feel inadequate or insignificant or distant from God. Friends, God loves you. He wants you to know him and enjoy him the way that he knows you and enjoys you. Your life has meaning and purpose no matter how insignificant you feel. Like Francis Schaeffer said, much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. Your life has meaning and your life has blessing. You have access to God's glory in Christ even now. And so this is an amazing prayer with tremendous benefits for us. And that leads us to the final question. What does Jesus' prayer do? What does Jesus' prayer do? It transforms our spirituality. It transforms the way that we commune with God. This prayer gives you an entirely new motivation for reading the Bible, for going to church, and for praying. It's, it's not about earning God's favor. We don't go to church. We don't open our scriptures during the day. We don't pray to try to work ourselves up to being a spiritual person. We do these things because it's about receiving the gifts that God already has set aside for you in Christ. You know God. You're united to Christ, and Christ wants to give you his joy. Verse 13, now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Jesus wants you to be joyful. So why wouldn't you read the Bible? Why wouldn't you go to church? Why wouldn't you pray? Christ gives you a vibrant spirituality full of glory. And so live into that. Also, this prayer transforms our community. It redefines our relationships in the church. Church relationships are not like school friendships or networking opportunities. We in the church don't tolerate each other simply because we have to or because it's good for business or because it's an opportunity for us to get ahead by stepping on one person in order to launch our career or get somewhere in front of other people. No, we are united. We already are a family. And so we don't have to work ourselves up into some imagined unity. We all, all we have to do is live out the unity that's already ours in Christ. Jesus has unified us. This prayer transforms our community. And finally, this prayer transforms our outreach. This prayer transforms our outreach. It reframes Christian mission. 
I think if we're honest, Christians often struggle with outreach. Uh, we, we fall off on one side of the spectrum or the other. Sometimes we try too hard and we make things awkward for our non-Christian friends or neighbors. Or, on the other hand, we, we think that evangelism is something that is so hard to do that we resent it. Because it's an impossible work that, that we just uh, resent having to do in the middle of our lives. But Jesus offers us a different path from either one of these. Here's the path that he offers us in this prayer. Organic outreach. An organic outreach that flows from our life with God and from our life together. Jesus assumes that our transformed spirituality and our transformed community will attract the world's attention. Verse 21 again. I ask that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That one verse holds together all of these different things. It holds together a transformed spirituality, a transformed community, and a transformed outreach. We don't have to work really hard to be Christ's witnesses. We already are Christ's witnesses. And so live out your faith. Live out your Christian life with freedom and with joy. Enjoy the love of God. Enjoy the fellowship of the church and God will use that to draw the world to himself. Of course, on days that we're discouraged, we might wonder, what's our hope that this actually is true? We've all been burned by empty promises before. We've all been burned by empty promises of spiritual growth, empty promises of fellowship within the church, empty promises of effective evangelism. How is this any different well, here's the difference. John chapter 17 is not a theological treatise, and it's not some flashy church program. It's a prayer. It's Jesus's prayer. Jesus prayed for these things, and Jesus always gets what he asks for. Jesus is the king's son, and when the king's son asks for something, he gets it. So don't lose hope. Jesus is transforming your spirituality. He is transforming your community. And he is transforming your outreach all because he loves you. And he has given you his glory. And so savor this prayer. Savor this wonderful prayer. Trust in Christ. Believe in his word. And you will have eternal life. The joy of knowing God and enjoying him forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, that again, it is truth. We thank you that you have given us wonderful and amazing promises, and more than anything, we thank you, Jesus, that you prayed for us. We were on your mind at this time, we were on your heart. You knew our names. And you took that with, uh, with you to the cross. You took us with you there so that you can take us with you to heaven. Thank you, O oh Lord. And so now we pray 
that as we go from here, as we turn to the table of grace, that you would continue to confirm these prayers for us. Intercede for us, Father. Intercede for us, O Son and Spirit. Give us what we need. In the name of Christ, amen.